0: Welcome to the Stott Legacy.
1: He is within us. He shares in the pain and identifies himself. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Think of the beginning of the
0: first letter of Peter when he says that we were chosen by God the Father. It is 2021 and this marks the centenary of the birth of John Stott in central London. He holds a unique place in 20th century church history, not just because of his impact on the British church, but because of his impact on the global church. So throughout the year we will meet a broad range of people from across the world, both women and men who knew him and worked closely with him, as well as those who never met him but were nevertheless shaped by his preaching and writing. This is not because he always got things right. He was quick to admit his own flaws and blind spots, but because his thought, life, and example represent many challenges to our own generation. My name is Mark Mennell, and I hope you will join me as we explore inspiration, challenges, and insights from the life of Uncle John. I first heard about Christopher Catherwood 30 years ago. While I was an undergraduate student, and of course, knew nothing about him apart from the fact that he'd just got engaged to Paulette, a postgrad music student from the States who came to our little Bible study group. Well, since then, Christopher became a full time historian uh, focused on the 20th century and especially Winston Churchill, and it's about Churchill that he's written a number of books. His father was the late Sir Fred Catherwood. A Northern Irish businessman who became Vice President of the European Parliament, but it is in fact his mother's father that was the prompt for inviting him to the podcast, because his mother Elizabeth was the daughter of the renowned preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, who led Westminster Chapel in London for many years. Lloyd-Jones was 20 years older than John Stott, and as we'll discuss, was culturally very different. Nevertheless, At one point, Lloyd-Jones approached Uncle John with a view to him succeeding him as the preacher and pastor of Westminster Chapel. And that is one facet of what made the public disagreement that took place in 1966 between these two leaders such a painful one. But I was astonished to discover that Christopher, aged 11 or so at the time, was actually present at that meeting. It was a big national event, a conference called by the Evangelical Alliance. John Stott was in the chair, Lloyd-Jones was the main speaker, or one of them. And I asked Christopher whether he knew in advance what was about to happen.
1: No, I was just expecting, my grandfather was going to say something controversial and interesting. But what controversial and what interesting, I had no idea. So I wasn't quite prepared (laughs) for things that happened subsequently. But I knew, we all knew it was going to be a major meeting.
0: So the, the event was called by the Evangelical Alliance, and... My understanding is your grandfather was asked to address the topic of unity. Is that, have I got that right? Absolutely. And he had evolving views on unity, which are
1: different from when he was younger. So when he was younger, he was part of the Welsh Presbyterian Church, the Calvinistic Methodists, and was quite happy to do ecumenical things. Uh, but as time went by, he grew more dissatisfied with that position. Um, there had been a time when the leading member of the Raptors Union had the, divine, the divinity of Jesus, for example. You know, and things like that, and things that he started to get very unhappy about. And he really began to think, well, you know, can you be an evangelical in a denomination where your person in charge of you, pastorally, like your bishop, the district superintendent or whatever they have in the Baptist Union, isn't evangelical? You know, can you have a proper evangelical witness in a denomination that has non-evangelicals in it?
0: Would, would he make a distinction between those who denied central tenets of the creed, say, and those who perhaps had other traditions that were accumulated. I mean, was it about being strictly evangelical, or was it about those who detracted from the gospel? I think it was both really, probably. I mean, strict means, but above all, strictly evangelical. Yes, I mean,
1: people who deny the core truths of evangelical Christian faith. And that
0: was the heart of his message at
1: the the assembly. I think so. I mean, and the key the key thing was he couldn't understand how you could be in a denomination where, where you could even deny you know, deny the, the resurrection, for example. I and mean, that, that's, that's what puzzled him and how, how you could be an evangelical Christian and do that. I don't, and I think Ian Murray, his biographer, is right to say that he wasn't setting out to have, to found a new denomination or anything like that. I mean, he what was, he, was, he was trying to do was make a sort of prophetic call to evangelicals to rethink their positions if they were in denominations that were mixed they should come out of them and form some kind of association with each other but not of a sort of necessarily you know predetermined kind I mean he didn't have a plan you know where everybody didn't join the FIEC and you know and all the rest right and Westminster he wasn't
0: them. specifically talking about Anglicans then
1: not at all no and this is the great mistake actually and the interesting thing is that the appeal to the free churches to leave their denominations was enormously successful I mean the Poor Old Baptist Union lost a lot of people in it also, too, so did the Welsh Presbyterians, the Welsh Calvinistic Methodists, inc- and that was embarrassing because his brother-in-law, Ian Phillips, Bethan Phillips, bethan Lord Jones's brother, was the moderator of the Welsh Presbyterians. Uh, now, was he at the assembly? No, he wasn't there. But I mean, he was—he was family, and he was at—he was at Prince Charles's investiture in 1969 as moderator of the Welsh Calvinistic Methodists, also taking part in the service in 1969 was Glyn Simon, who was the Archbishop of Wales who was also a, who was a more distant cousin of a generation of my grandmother's so that was so so in the family it was quite an so interesting series of debates um, so did that get quite tricky oh, the gatherings absolutely yes he kept it as amicable as possible as often happens I think you say it's true to say that he was more amicable than many of his followers who were not anything oh. like as amicable. so and, and of course he still continued to have evangelical Anglican friends I mean one of them was Philip Edgecombe Hughes, the theologian who was at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. And another one oh, was the Rector of St. Paul's, who was a Welshman, jo- John Gwen Thomas. And, and John Thomas was also a close friend of J.I. Packer, which you can go into later. And so he, he continued to have private fellowship with evangelical Anglicans. But the great myth of 1966 is that John Stott saw it off. Was actually, there wasn't anything to see off because actually the people who followed him were people in the free church, well, my grandfather, people in the free churches, were he was very successful. And I think Don Carson has been right to say that the thing about my grandfather is that he was very Welsh. So for him, it was a theological doctrinal issue, whereas to many people in the Church of England, if you know, they saw being in the Church of England as a wonderful way of being able to evangelize England, it was sort of God's way of evangelizing. It was
0: more pragmatism.
1: It was pragmatism, but it's theological, to be fair, it's theological pragmatism. You know, this is, you know, God's ordained this way, and so we're evangelical Christians, the... Doctrines of the church of England are still evangelical. Well, let's go for it. I mean, let's you know, let's follow God in the denomination in which He's put
0: us. You're sitting in the gallery, um, aged 11, yes. And as soon as Martin Lloyd Jones sits down at the end of his address, John Stott is sitting behind him or I alongside, diagonally behind, I think. I mean, close, diagonally behind. John what? stands up and immediately contradicts or challenges the presumptions of, of the talk. Do you remember that moment? Oh, I do. And
1: uh, it, was, it was an electric atmosphere. You know, of course, I'm dealing with my mother, because she was absolutely appalled. I mean, she was shocked, you know, this has this, this happened. Because you don't normally contradict the speaker. Um, no. But, but, you know, people have said that he suddenly, because of the power of the eloquence that my grandfather had, had shown, he suddenly saw all these brilliant young, bright young Anglican evangelicals all leaving the church in England and following it into goodness knows what, you know, so that he felt that he had to make a disagreement in order not to create a debacle. I don't think he probably intended it to come over in the way that he did. You know, How did it come over? It came over as you're talking rubbish. <laughs> so, uh, but then of course I'm talking from one of you, the grandson of Martin L. Jones, you know, I mean, the evangelical activists probably said, oh, good on John, Stop for, good, for, good for Uncle John, you know, he's told the doctor, you know, and all the rest. So, uh, but anyway, so it was. it was clear that there was a major disagreement.
0: And that disagreement has shown its face in different forms ever since, hasn't it, really? I don't think it's fully been resolved. It hasn't in some ways, although it
1: has in others. There are things like gospel partnerships, aren't there? And, and they have... Evangelical Anglicans and evangelical FIC and evangelical Baptists you know, and all the rest right. So my parents' church, uh, which is a Grace Baptist well, your son the well, Grace Baptist Church, is involved in gospel partnerships in East Anglia with local evangelical Anglican churches. So what's happened actually is that decades later, evangelical Anglicans have decided for themselves we're now going to co- collaborate with our evangelical free church brethren and all and the sort of a lot of the disagreements of the past have thankfully faded into the past.
0: I mean, it took a generation or two before that was remotely possible again, do you think? Or was it happening on a small scale? I think it was happening on a small scale. I mean, it was happening in my own life, of course, we'll go on to later. But but yes, I mean, I think
1: on a small scale, I mean, people like Dick Lucas were still, you know, preaching at FIC and Strict Baptist chapels, you know, and on a sort of pastoral individual basis through the Proclamation Trust, a lot of Mm. people started talking to each other who hadn't been speaking to them for some while. I think also the hardliners around my grandfather, they believed in secondary separation so that you didn't talk to people who talked to Anglicans. It's so not that you not right. talk to yourself, but you can speak to those who do. As they sort of died off or became less important, many free church people openly started talking to evangelical Anglicans. Did Lloyd-Jones specifically challenge that second degree line? He never really talked about it in front of me. I mean, you know, so his followers said that he was with them and other people said that, no, he wasn't, and of course, I never actually asked him on the specifics of the secondary. He and I didn't agree on the, on the primary separation, but I think that generation, as that generation died off, I think evangelical it. and things like the Proclamation Trust were sort of torchbearers of that. Right. And things like Word Alive, you know, and the Indeed. UCF were very much part of that as well. And you Keswick. Know? And Keswick, you know. And of course, privately in 1968, when my grandfather nearly died of cancer, he and John had a private reconciliation meeting,
0: but Do you know what the circumstances of that reconciliation were?
1: Well, it's because it was thought that my grandfather was going to die, and I think John Saut yes. you know, and making up between them on a personal level. You know, I have to be careful what I say because some of my family knew John Stott separately from from all that, as such as my father, and so and I got to know him as well, and others sort of you know didn't know John Stott, and therefore didn't have a, quite the same view. You know,
0: but th- what's interesting about I I guess what made that potentially painful was because. They had got on pretty well before 1966, well.
1: and they were the yep. great they were the great proponents of expository preaching in London. If you wanted to go have a good expository sermon, you went to Westminster Chapel to All Souls, or in a lot of cases, both actually. I mean, I think like I'm, yourself, like myself. I mean, I was one of them. And then when I, in
0: 1973, when I went to Oxford, I mean, the church I went to was St. James. When um, your grandfather was, you know, succession planning, as it were, actually. Yes. He even had John Stott in mind, didn't he at one point well yes he did I mean before all the bus stuck, I mean John Stott was one of the people who he thought would be good
1: because of his preaching power, absolutely, and then the real problems because my grandfather retired actually because he had cancer, therefore it became very difficult of course for my grandfather to be involved in the
0: in the actual succession planning so uh, after that momentous interruption or intervention from John. Yeah. Do you remember discussing it as a family afterwards and... Yes, it was very much, but there was not unanimous agreement.
1: I mean, I didn't actually agree with my grandfather, and, and which he knew. You know, I mean, it was, I mean, I've been condemned by some of his hardline followers back in the 70s and 80s, but, but such is life, you know. I mean, because I do not you know, I tend to take the views that the saints in Ephesus, you know, that there isn't a denominational structures are not part of the Bible. And therefore, you can't divide over something that isn't scriptural.
0: And there are sheep without and wolves within. Exactly. That's right. Absolutely. You
1: know, and you could never have a pure denomination. Um, and so I said, well, you know, you've got to be faithful for the generation to which God has called you. And so you join an evangelical church that claims the gospel, and you don't think about its, its denominational affiliations. He knew that in Ebs, I had, you know, I had excellent preaching because he knew of Keith Weston. What was funny is that he would come once a year to a very small Baptist church in the far north of Oxford, well beyond a student walking distance. And of course the church would be packed with students. And he said, Well, all these students here. I said, Yes, but they're only here because of you when all the other non-conformists all went SNEBs in my generation. I mean now it's different because it's now a thriving evangelical free church. Um, yeah, there's a lot more
0: choice, isn't there?
1: Now yeah, there's choice, but when I went there, there really wasn't, unless you unless you had good leg muscles. So uh...
0: <laughs> let me interrupt the conversation at that point and we'll return to Christopher shortly. But for this episode's book review, I want to introduce Theo Kavunakis. Theo is one of the coordinators of Langham Preaching's work in Greece. But I actually got to know him first when he was in London and attending All Souls Church while he was doing a law PhD. The book he's going to review is actually John Stott's final book, one that came out in 2010, The Radical Disciple.
2: Stott's purpose in this book is to, quote, consider eight characteristics of Christian discipleship. That are often neglected and yet deserve to be taken seriously, End quote. nonconformity, christlikeness, maturity, creation care, simplicity, balance, dependence, and finally death form together Uncle John's portrait of the radical disciple in his unique manner. he concludes on nonconformity. Quote, we have considered four major secular trends that threaten to engulf the Christian community. Over against the challenge of pluralism, we are to be a community of truth, standing up for the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Over against the challenge of materialism, we are to be a community of simplicity and pilgrimage. Over against the challenge of relativism, we are to be a community of obedience, Over against the challenge of narcissism, we are to be a community of love. Even today I find astonishing the fact that next to the big categories of pluralism and relativism, Stott would be so practical as to include materialism, and so insightful as to flag up narcissism. Stott's writing is yet again fresh and simple, with the intention to genuinely teach in a thoroughly biblical way. As I was reading this book, I was an apprentice at All Souls. And the following quote from the chapter about maturity has been a great encouragement and inspiration since, There can be no higher goal of ministry. What a wonderful slogan this is for anybody called to leadership, longing to present everybody for whom we are in any way responsible, mature in Christ. Looking back, we can see a, dub- a double responsibility. Maturity in Christ is the goal both for ourselves and for our ministry to others. So then may God give us such a full, clear vision of Jesus Christ. First, that we may grow into maturity ourselves. And second, that by a faithful proclamation of Christ in his fullness to others, we may present others mature as well. Quote. Even as I prepare myself for this Little review, the burden of being in ministry is huge. Uncle John's legacy is a great means of grace that ever sustains me to keep on keeping on.
0: Let's take a step back and and do a, a, an overview, if you like, and, and compare and contrast the two. I mean, there was, what, 20 years difference in age or something like that. What do you think the main similarities and commonalities were between your father, grandfather and John Stott? Expository preaching and belief in expository preaching and, and the power of the gospel. I
1: actually have a signed, my copy of, of uh, John Stott's I believe in preaching is a signed copy, um, signed consciously to, the grand, to someone he had quoted them I in mean, preaching his logic on fire. And John Stott thought that was a wonderful analogy. And of course, you listen to their preaching, it, it, is power, it is powerful and it is expository, of course. And, and
0: just defines expository, for those who are not familiar with the term.
1: Going through the Bible, I mean, it's not sort of doing random sermons, you know, and sort of, it's not like going through the lectionary of doing different bits, you know, doing Mark one day and Ezekiel the next or something like that. Mm-hmm. Actually going through a book of the Bible, exploring what God is telling us in that book, expounding the word of God as laid out in Acts or something, I'll Take an example of some a book of the Bible they both preached on. It's the, it's the centrality of, the, of God's word, really. It's a sort of relative of God's word to building up the saints.
0: Not just from the pulpit, then?
1: No, absolutely. Everything you do is God, is Christ-centered and is, um, is, is Bible-centered. And they were, in that, they were very similar, actually. John thought he would have some sermon cards where you know, he'd arrange ahead of time what he would preach, you know, which bits of acts he would preach on. Whereas my grandfather, he, would, he tended to take the view that the Holy Spirit leading, be actually making two sermons on the same verse. And so he never liked to say ahead what he was going to preach on. But, you know, but nonetheless, you know, it, it was their biblical
0: exposition. Um, and it's not that, uh, in case people misunderstood, that he's just leaving it to the last minute. He did hours well, and hours of prep, didn't he? Well, he did 40 hours a week. And
1: he was in his little room and, and he wasn't able to be interrupted. My grandmother just looked after the rest of the world for him so that he could be <laughs> In his, in a his, his uh, gatekeeper. Absolutely, total. And a very strict gatekeeper, too, my word. Did so, you ever interrupt him when he was preparing? Well, family could, but we were, we were not urged to go while he was preparing. Hmm. So our visits only coincided with when, when he was not preparing. And by the time I was old enough to walk there on my own, because he was walking distance from our house, he had retired from, from Westminster Chapel, so he wasn't preaching, you know, expositively. Well, of course, he was preaching three, three times a week, twice on Sunday and once on Friday. So f- when you say 40 hours, that's over the three talks? That's over the three talks, yes, absolutely. Yep. And yet, his notes, of course, you know, he actually remembered a lot of it, so that his actual notes are quite small.
0: Are there other similarities or commonalities?
1: Would you say they were both conservative, even theologically conservative evangelicals, and of course, very involved in student ministry? My wife, of course, remembers John Stott because he was he and Eric Alexander were the great preachers at the um at the Abana Mission Convention, really, the trinal one at, in the United States when she was in Varsity staff and when she was a student. And of course, my grandfather spoke to UCCF many times. He was his president and chairman, mm-hmm. um, as was John Stott. And of course, they spoke at many student conferences after the war. In fact, the two of them, really, in the 1940s, helped revive the mm-hmm. university, what's now the University of Colorado, the Christian Fellowship. And they gave it its sort of doctrinal and intellectual heft in many ways.
0: And uh, led or helped catalyze the beginnings of IFES, the International. Sure. Yes, my, my
1: father was one of the founders, actually. I mean, he was the yes. first founding chairman and he then became the president. I was involved in it, really, all his life. I mean, he's involved in it right through to the 1970s. And so a lot of the younger people, people my age, at, at uh, IFE's conferences, they all knew of Martin Jones and they'd read his books, but they'd also heard John Stott, and in some cases gone on ornithological trips with him, you know. So, yeah. So yes, so, so both of them were hugely influential globally, I think. And this is where concentrating on 1966, people forget that they were people of global influence. And outside of England, 1966 was, didn't matter. I mean, when my grandfather preached in, in in various places in the United States, which he would do, continue to do after he retired, nobody even knew, most people didn't even know it had happened in the United States.
0: So that split then obviously didn't have ramifications necessarily internationally, but because of... You know, the extent to which they shared a vision and commitments, that must have made it quite painful. Oh, it did. It made it very painful. Christopher went on to describe one of the unintended consequences of that 1966 disagreement. Uh, This was the pressure that it inevitably placed on a number of relationships, both within the wider Lloyd-Jones family, but also with uh, good friends uh, like J.I. Packer. Now, Jim Packer had been a close friend of Elizabeth, Christopher's mother, while they were exact contemporaries at Oxford. And fortunately that friendship continued till the day he died, just quite recently. But it wasn't the same with Martin Lloyd-Jones, with Christopher's grandfather. They, of course, had a shared love and appreciation for the Puritans and reformed theology. And Lloyd-Jones had hoped that Packer would continue to be the great standard bearer for their perspectives. Uh, after him. And of course, that is indeed what happened. But he found himself alarmed and profoundly confused when Packer would take stand on a number of issues alongside Catholics and Anglo-Catholics with whom they shared deep disagreement and problems. But from Packer's point of view, this was a necessary step to combat what he perceived as the deeper threats from liberalism. But after 66, when Packer remained an Anglican and uh, carried on within this mixed denomination, it put a strain on their partnership. Interestingly though, of course, Packer and Lloyd-Jones would have had much more in common culturally than Lloyd-Jones and Stott did. And I asked, therefore, whether Christopher felt that the, the old British disease of class might have played a part in the tensions his grandfather had with John Stott.
1: Yes, I and mean, that's why I quoted Don Carson earlier, by saying my grandfather was Welsh, and he was extremely Welsh, and he was working-class Welsh. I mean, in that one sense, I mean, his father was a milkman. In fact, his father was a milkman who sadly went bankrupt. And then he was brought up in London, in West London, London. Um, well no, no, so central London, central London, not central London. Indeed. Very In very close to where he related me to Westminster Chapel. He then, of course, then went to South Wales to the working class town of Aberavon. My mother's mother's background was much more upper middle class. I mean they, they had sort of working class ancestors, but my great great grandfather wasn't was Lloyd George's eye surgeon. So my mother's mother's family were, were sort of upper middle class professional. And they were what we might call London Welsh, really. I think it was
0: in the London Welsh Chapel in Charing Cross Road where my grandparents met each other. Did that lead to your grandfather feeling slightly out on a limb when he was in London? No, he didn't feel out on a
1: limb because he, he was actually cleverer than most of them. So, I mean, <laughs> he was at called hospital in London and was all said of some Barts people. That, that you could always tell a Barts people, but you couldn't tell him much. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he was very much, very much part of the medical the non-conformist medical elite, and my grandmother was at University College Hospital, which of course was founded in the 19th century for people from free church backgrounds, but a lot of whom were sort of middle-class free church backgrounds, like my grandmother. So he didn't feel out in the limb, he just didn't agree with it. He thought it was slightly lightweight. He didn't have the sort of depth of Welsh non-conformity. The non were very educated, so it wasn't, really, it wasn't so much educational difference, but it, what it was was a huge social difference the sort of social niceties of peeps, the vast public schools, you know.
0: So that, that um, difference in culture, do you think that played a part as well in, you know, the, the call in 1966 to, to leave sort of respectable collegiality with people who had different views? I mean, well, do you think that was, he, well, he perceived that as part of the background?
1: I think it was part of the background, whether he perceived it or not, you know. But that's why it's interesting to say, more than say, that a lot of Free Church people, you know, people who hadn't been to university, other Baptists, you know, and sort of Welsh Calvinistic Methodists, they came out in groves because they didn't have the sort of class background that the people from the English public, school the English public school people had. You know, came
0: right? out of their denominations, you mean? They
1: came out of their denominations. So, so actually, I mean, the sixty-six school was a success, which people forget because they concentrated totally wholly on the Stott-Lloyd Jones dynamic, rather right. than all the others. In Wales, you had sort of. It, you had sort of Welsh non-performance had depth, It uh, also it had emotionalism, which my grandfather disliked. That's why you had the logic on fire because a lot of Welsh churches had the fire, but I mean, there wasn't there's no logic, I mean, and they didn't preach, there's no expository preaching or anything. It was all it, one way, it was deep, and the other hand, it was light. Was you know, John Stott was interesting because he had depth, and he and the sort of John Stott group they had depth,
0: and perhaps a, a little less fire, maybe
1: a less, well, yes, absolutely, yes, definitely. I mean, <laughs> But yes, I mean your head was warm. It was moved when move. you heard John you know,
0: But you weren't, you weren't moved to your withers, you know. So. <laughs> so you mentioned that your grandfather was uh, opposed or uh, uncomfortable with the emotionalism that he saw. Do you want to just say a bit more about that?
1: Well a lot of it was very lightweight. I mean there was no depth, there was no biblical exposition.
0: Intellectual depth you mean.
1: Intellectual depth, that's right. There's no intellectual depth at all. It was all stirring up the emotions. And of course Welsh people are very can be very easily moved.
0: Not so, like Englishmen.
1: Not like Englishmen. There's <laughs> a <laughs> sweet public school, you know. <laughs> um, and all the rest, but um, but there was no, no depth. This worried him because of course it's very easy to, to move people. But if there's no theological depth, it's all the fire but none of the logic, then you're not really having proper biblical exposition. He was very much a believer that he used a John, John, the name in John Stott's book, Your Mind Matters, Mind, Heart, Will. I and mean, he wouldn't say, you know, talk to yourself you know, and um, and reason things through. So he was a great believer in reason and, and, and logic, of course. And that's, that was came from his medical training. I mean, he'd always say that his medical training made him the kind of preacher that he was. I think that he was influenced considerably by his medical training, because if you were a diagnostician, then you had to work out what the problem was, what was the actual illness. And interestingly enough, when he was an Aberavon, because he was actually better trained than all the local doctors, because he trained at BOTS, and sometimes you know, they would bring him in, because they'd say, well, I don't know what's wrong with this person, Doctor do you? And actually, in one case, he discovered that it wasn't, but actually somebody had been faking the illness, so that the, the person actually wasn't ill, they were just trying to get off work you know they were shirking and that was that, that, that sense of logic was very important and the mind and that's what i yes. thought that's something they did very much have in common
0: but perhaps one place well, or one area that they differed was on charismatic things and some people said that your grandfather was heading in that direction towards the end of his life or is that is that unfair i think it's unfair but but
1: but what he did is he liked a lot of the charismatics, especially a lot of the reformed charismatics, the people in you know, what we now call the new frontiers or whatever they now call themselves. He knew a lot of them quite well, actually, and he was a sort of mentor to quite a few of them. He said that the problem with a lot of the free churches is they had a lot of the logic, but none of the fire. So you could go to people and they had no sense of life. And I remember talking to one of his close Welsh acolytes in a, in a, in a cafe saying, you know, and he said, the great thing about your grandfather is he believed in life. You know, and of course, what he saw in his old Pentecostal churches, he knew quite a few Pentecostal pastors, was the sense of life. You know, they were alive, their faith was living. Although, doctrinally, they may be getting slightly, slightly woolly at the ages, you know, there was something about the life they had and the sort of sense of depth, of feeling of their Christian life, which wasn't present in large other parts of um, evangelical. And if
0: there's life, you can, you can work
1: with that. You can work with it, exactly. And you can introduce doctrine, because the people with the real life, of course, will come to understand doctrine and the need for doctrine. I think lots of people want to claim him. And, of course, lots of people want to claim him in the other direction, say he didn't actually believe any of it, you know. So, I mean, you can't win. I mean, he's, he's, been a, he's been a football for years. And, and I'm what's called I think, sort of classic Anglican, you know,
0: uh, open but cautious. Because I was going to pick up on this because um, you just said it, but before you were hinting. So you've become an Anglican.
1: Yes, I mean, I am. I mean I'm, I've been on the electoral roll of the church for well over 30 years. I've actually been a member of, of St. Andrew the Great in Oxford, in Cambridge, other, St. Andrew the Great, Cambridge, for longer than I was a member of Westminster Chapel.
0: So, and um, your grandfather knew that you'd become an Anglican or just attending? He knew that I was deeply profiting by John Keith Weston's marvellous
1: ministry. And the interesting yeah. thing was that in the 1940s, when his views weren't so strict, my mother went to St. James herself when she was at Oxford. So so consequently, yes, I mean I so I joined the church, you know, I joined Church of England and you know, mm-hmm. for a while when I was living in Lewis in Sussex, I te- I went to a interesting church. It was a it was a mix of merger a cantus of Huntington's connection church with a Baptist Union Church. And this was all back in goodness, way back when. So it was a Calvinistic Baptist Union church, simply because I had friends there and I just went where my friends were. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I went there. But of course, once I got to Cambridge, and I tried you know, being loyal to my parents, going to uh, the offshoot of Eden Raptors within there. I thought, well, I really want to go to Paulette. And I decided, with a son, I'd married Paulette. And she and I, she went faithfully to St. Andrew's in Church mm-hmm. in North Oxford. And we decided that we, we so enjoyed um, Mark Ashton's ministry and so enjoyed the Round Church, it was called, that you know, we never thought of going anywhere else. And so, we were, so I was there for 25 years. Than I've been six years at All Saints, Little Chelwood,
0: which was a plant from St Andrew's,
1: and that, it's my get at a jail card. It's where Christopher Ash was the rector. So to mm-hmm. Americans, I say, oh, it's okay. I go to Christopher Ash's church, and they say, oh, it's okay then. The round moved to St Andrew the Great. That was where that was William Perkins' church. Indeed. Oh, Golden Chain. You. Golden Chain. So I tell people in this America, oh, it's okay, I may be in that church Ang- Anglican, but it's William Perkins' church. <laughs> William Perkins was my guest out of jail for 25 years, now it's Christopher Act.
0: In some circles, not necessarily all circles, probably. I'm not, most people, most people, <laughs> people I not <couldn't> care less. <laughs> it's obviously evangelical, they don't care. <laughs> your relationship with your grandfather was, was close though, wasn't it? Oh, it was immensely close. I mean, he was more like my father than my father was, because my father
1: was the archetypal um, type A chief, chief executive, Head of the river at Cambridge, um, mm. it worked six days a week um, and was a total workaholic, mm-hmm. and believed and, and sanctified his workaholism. He was never available. It was the person I could go to and speak. To, was my grandfather, and my grandfather, I could, we could talk all the time. When they came mm. to say with us in their house in their house in Cambridgeshire, my mother acted as my grandmother. She acted as the sort of interceptor of phone calls, and my grandfather spent an hour with me just talking or playing croquet or some, some you know. I mean, there's one, yes, you know, so I had a sort of spiritual crisis and I literally rang him at about one thirty in the morning. When you were a student? I, when I was a student. I just rang him from a call box. This is just well, This is outside Balior. I mean, long since gone by the time you got to Oxford, because I have got to put proper phones there. But I mean, <laughs> but, but in those days, this, these ancient days, it was the from which I could phone my grandfather. So I knew he was awake, because he, he was an owl, not a rock. You know, and I, he'd talked to me for about half an hour. And he gave me this wise mm. spiritual counsel over the phone between must been, 1.30 and 2 o'clock in the morning.
0: And Christopher, you and I have chatted before and, and talked about the fact that we've both had times of sort of battling with depression, the black dog, as Churchill used to call it. Is that something you could talk about with your grandfather? Oh, absolutely, yes, I mean, mm. because he knew
1: of it. I mean, you know, and of course my grandmother had it extremely badly, my mother's mother had it. And there the Philips had it going back to the 18th century. But of course, I think... But he had it as well. Now, this is very controversial because this is where why knowing the Churchill family is interesting because Churchill had Black Dog. Indeed. He talked to evangelical members of the Churchill family, and he does have some. And they descended through the eldest daughter, the elder, eldest daughter who committed suicide. I mean, a very tragic mm. person. Yes. Aunt Grace, many of her descendants became evangelical Christians. Huh. They would say that, that, that Churchill must have certainly had a depression because some of them had depression as well. One of them was very, Jonathan Sands Churchill was very open about having depression. And when you was having depression, talk to people with teenagers with depression saying, I have it, my great grandfather, Winston Churchill had it. This is how to get over it. You can work through it. He used, it thera- he used his own depression therapeutically. You know, sadly, he mm-hmm. died in his forties, very sadly. You know, and what I was very keen evangelical, and someone I got to know actually through Pete Williams, the warden of Tyndale House. Mm-hmm. Um, not through not through Churchill church links. But of course the, mm-hmm. the official Churchill policy line, line of the Churchill of Churchill Society is Churchill was a great man. He can't possibly have had depression.
0: Because the two are sort of contradictory.
1: Two things are contradictory. So when I have said that Winston Churchill suffered from Black Dog, which I've one of the several right books, I am I am denounced, you know, right. in speaking. You know, this this don't read this book by Christopher Catholic because Churchill he says Churchill had depression. Of course, Churchill can't possibly have had depression. You know, um, you know.
0: And so you're saying that people would take a similar line with yes. Lord so Jones? When,
1: when Giles Davis said in his book, um, in the second version of his book, Genius and Grace, that Martin I. Jones was a classic example of someone who had depression, I mean the uproar was huge. I mean it was, it was not I mean, you know, I knew Giles Davis extremely well because I was at university with one of his uh, children and you mm. know I, I knew him sort of personally quite well too. And to the level. And, you know, I've been saying to you, I mean, said, Christopher, both your grandpa- both your grandparents had depression. And, of course, it makes sense. I mean, there are lots of alcoholics in the Lloyd-Jones family. Mm. Alcohol is, of course, mass depression. And so, consequently, therefore, even the idea that my grandfather had depression from, really, basically, I think, from his from his mother's family, the Evans, I think, makes to me, makes lots of sense. Did you ask him outright about that? or I never got to ask no. him outright, but he knew my struggles, because I had a major depressive episode my third year at Oxford, and, of course, he was... Mm. I mean, he believed in, you know, having therapy and taking the pills. My mm. father believed in throwing away the pills and going jogging, because <laughs> right. I can't the pills and getting therapy, which I then proceeded to get, you know, so. You didn't go jogging then? No, I never <laughs> jogging, no. no. <laughs> I, mean, I used to say, was my I used to say, prayer Paulette and pills, you know, but sadly, of course, I'm not a widower, but I mean, you know. No, no, mean, I think he definitely had depression. He would say that he had a melancholic temperament, and of course, you know, he would say that he was never a teenager, because of course, his father's a dairy went bust, went bust when he was a teenager and my grandfather had to pay for his brother's education I think he was, one who was a, lawyer. He was a lawyer even through you know through Oxford and through the early years of the bar my grandfather was a medical was a civil
0: and didn't your grandfather have an episode we well, do was, was in about 48
1: well, in 48 where he had a major depressive episode in 1948 and mm. interesting things my castle grandfather had also had a major depressive episode a few years before when his company was nationalized.
0: We must draw threads together, I fear. Um, but I think this has been absolutely fascinating. I'm really grateful to you. I wonder, <laughs> as we close, if you could perhaps sum up what you gain from, obviously as part of the family from your grandfather, but spiritually from from both men, you know, what was their legacy for you personally? A scriptural
1: worldview. The Bible is best studied expositively so that, you know, I can't, now cope with that expository preaching every Sunday and study the scriptures as to the heart of Christian life, and that you have a Christian worldview. I mean, both of them very much they, I mean they wouldn't have called it worldviews, but I mean, they both had very much of a Christian worldview. You know, Christianity actually covers the whole of life. And here, of course, the fact that I knew Francis Schaefer as a teenager as well, and i still still to go, go to the same church as one of his grandchildren. You know, Schaefer was the other big influence, of course. But in practice, Martin Jones and John Scott had a, an identical evangelical worldview. You know, you see that, you saw that in the expository preaching and in fact they thought through things in a Christian expository way, you know, and the fact that the use of your mind, your mind matters. And mm. the fact that the truth is objective after Paulette died was wonderfully helpful because mm. if you're dominated by your emotions, you know, you know that, you say, oh my God, where's, where is God? Because if you know that he loves you, and you know, because the, because the Bible says he loves you, you have a high view of scripture and that you think through logically, you know, the logic of the fire... Although the fire is is, is burning with, with sorrow, logic is saying, but God's with you. you know, and that I get from both John Stott and Martin I do I mean, very much so, in fact. Mm. You know, I'm profoundly grateful to God for both of them.
0: That is a wonderful note on which to end. So, Christopher, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much. It's been fantastically enjoyable, as always. Langham Partnership is the umbrella for the various international ministries that were formed out of John Stott's work It has three programs Langham Scholars, Langham Literature and Langham Preaching and works in around 90 countries. It's committed to equipping Indigenous churches and their leaders around the world by resourcing, helping to train and equip scholars, writers, pastors and Bible teachers. Our prayer request this time is for the third program of Langham Partnership and the one that I'm involved in, Langham Preaching. We're the baby of the family having been uh, running for only about 20 years or so. And we've seen, even in that period, a lot of change and and growth, thankfully. Uh, The core element of what we do is what in South America are called Esqualitas and elsewhere preacher's circles or preacher's clubs, whatever different cultures like to call them. The idea is a small group of preachers and Bible teachers, perhaps uh, around eight in number, pledged to meet regularly for about three years as a way of helping one another to grow in their preaching and learning. So this is one of the few things that COVID has not completely interrupted. And fortunately, we've been hearing news from these clubs or circles all over the world that have continued to meet uh, through Zoom and other means. So do pray for these groups that the proverb of iron sharpening iron might be true of the hundreds of such circles and clubs that meet around the world. You've been listening to The Stop Legacy with me, Mark Mennell. Thank you very much for listening. In particular, I want to thank Vic Marseille, my colleague uh, who works with Langham Partnership UK and Ireland. She has been slogging away in the background, working very hard, putting all the ingredients to these episodes together, editing and polishing and producing a first-class job. If you want to find out more about uh, Langham Partnership, you can go to langham.org, that is L-A-N-G-H-A-M.org. Also, if you want to find out more about John Stott himself and anything that's happening for this centenary year, then go to the website johnstott, all one word, .org And on that site, you'll find a blog for this podcast with links and photographs for each episode. That's johnstott.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, goodbye.